So I go back to Southern California for the semester on Tuesday. Um, so I just wanted to say how, or just uh, let you guys know how, how much I appreciate you guys as a church and as friends. Um, this is, it's so good to be part of a community where, um, you know, our, our church, we don't have problems with politics yet. And uh, we, uh, you guys are my friends and um, like we, we have, we have, um, like everyone here contributes something to the to to the this body. Um, there are the thing I like about being a part of community is that there are people that are smarter than me. Thank goodness there are people that speak better than I do. There are people that teach better than I do. There are people that are more humble, people that work harder than I do, and people that pray harder than I do. And I'm so thankful that. There's not a sense of competition here. I don't have to try to be better than anyone. I'm part of you guys, and you guys are part of me. And um, this is something that I really cherish. Uh, going back to Southern California, I always tell, uh, I'm, I'm pretty involved in my church in Anaheim, but I always tell my pastor, um, I, I say no to him a lot because I say, um, I tell him, my church in the Bay Area is my home church, and it's always going to be my priority. Um, so, it's just, I, I hope that we appreciate it. And even for us to bring our own weaknesses into the congregation, that's a gift to the other people around you, to bring your own sin into this place and, um, and, and be honest with it. That's a gift because that means that we can serve you and that we can, we can pray with you and we can also confess our sins to each other and we can encourage each other. So I just want to, uh, I guess I'll be back like multiple times, hopefully, um, before before the school year is over, but I just want to let you know that when I'm not here, I'm thinking of you guys. Uh, I, I'm just so appreciative of of the uh, of you guys and of this place as a church, and know that God is blessing it. and um, And I look forward to many years and decades um, to grow with you guys. So I hope that the person you see now is not the same person you see um, 30, 40 years. I hope that we all will be us together, um, maybe a little bit bigger, maybe a little bit smaller, but I do want to uh, be a part of your lives. So with that, uh, let's turn our Bibles to Hebrews, or if you have your bulletins, let's stand as you read Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of God. And will you pray with me? God, we, uh, we acknowledge that you are the author of this passage that we just read. We acknowledge that you are the Lord of, of this church and Lord of the entire world, God. And I pray that we would, uh, just in the time that we have, that you would humble us that you would cause us to worship you, that you would give us a sense of the gravity of um, what you are and that we respond appropriately. And uh, with all the stuff that we bring into this, in, into this hour, into this church, I pray that you, we would submit, that we would learn to submit 
um, our, our worries to you, our sins to you, our temptations to you, our desires to you, God. And may you be uh, glorified. May you be made a big deal um, in, in the coming few min- moments and uh, do something that only you can do. Uh, Holy Spirit, come and work through the words, through the prayers, through the fellowship of this people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. So ideally, what we do, if you guys have read through Hebrews, you know it's a very um, rich book, and we would set aside maybe a few months, or some people set aside years, to go through the book of Hebrews, so we can fully uh, see what is being communicated here. Uh, We don't have that luxury, but uh, to sort of catch us up on what's going on, if if you aren't familiar with the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Christians in the first century that were suffering uh, persecution. They were going through trials. And the writer of Hebrews, he wrote this to them to encourage them. He's saying, don't give up, persevere, hold on to the hope that you have. And also he talks about how Jesus is superior to uh, angels. Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is superior to the ministers of the old covenant. And as we read this passage, we we look at uh, a comparison of uh, of us and Jesus made to, to angels. And we'll see what's being communicated here as uh, Hebrews is rich in, in pulling the Old Testament text and, and seeing how there's a how cohesive theme to the Bible. Um, so uh, so he, for these, for the Christians that were listening to, listening or reading this letter of Hebrews, they were suffering. They just... Uh, Everywhere they turned, there was persecution. Some people were being killed for their faith because they were Christians. And they looked forward to something uh, beyond this world. In Hebrews 13, it says that these people, they were not set on this city, set on this earth where they had no lasting city, but they looked forward. They, they were seeking a city that was to come. So here in chapter, in verse 5, we see that this world that is to come is referenced. So now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. And here, he, uh, in verse 6, he testifies, he, uh, he, read, he quotes Psalm 8. And I'm going to read actually from, if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to Psalm 8 with me. I'm going to read from actual, the actual psalm so we get a broader context of what is being communicated here. So Psalm 8, uh, if you are in your Bible, you can follow me um, starting at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So our first point here is, what is our original intention? What is our original intention? The psalmist here in Psalm 8, he sees the, he looks into the sky, he sees the sun and the moon and the stars, and he goes, wow, this is incredible. And this, the, the, he didn't have the same, like, back, back when he wrote Psalm 8, he didn't have, didn't have the Hubble telescope. And if you guys have ever seen pictures that the Hubble telescope has taken, it's incredible. It's, the, it's, it's mapped out, so far it's mapped out 13.4 billion light years across. And like we can't even comprehend how big that is, but um, let me assure you that it's really, really big. Like our minds can't even wrap 
around how big that number is. And if you were to take uh, the, the map of, of, the, of the entire universe, if you wanted to find man on there, man would not even be a little tiny speck on that, on that map. If you wanted to find Earth on there, you could not find Earth because Earth is so tiny compared to the rest of the universe. If you wanted to find the sun, maybe a little dot. If you wanted to find the Milky Way, okay, you can see a little bit, but it takes up such a tiny portion of this entire map. And this, there's more, there's more than uh, what the Hubble telescope has captured. The psalmist here, he looks at the sky. He says, wow, this is incredible. And then he asks this question. He's, he's almost as if he's bewildered. How, God, can you, the maker of the universe, consider man? How can you look at man and care for him? There's, there's, how is it that you even pay attention? How is it that God can love us when you look at how big everything is? And the question, or the answer to that question is found in Genesis 1, chapter 1, at the beginning of the Bible. So actually today what we're going to do is we're going to cover the uh, entire Bible, kind of. Uh, so I hope you guys don't mind. I know that, uh, that I might speak a little bit longer than, than uh, Sean or, or Michael might, but uh, I'll try to keep it not as long. But I'm going to turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. If you're in your Bibles, you might want to read with me. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And here's the key. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So why does God pay attention? Why does God give any thought to man? It's because man was created by God, and man was the only thing that was created in God's image. So there is a dignity, there is a worth to every single person, from the street sweeper to kings and queens. They are all created in the image of God. They all have the stamp of God on them. So what is man that you have? You pay any attention to him? God pays attention to us because we're, we're uniquely created for his own purpose, and we're created in the image of God. And if we look here, what is verse 7 in Hebrews 2.7? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. Where do the angels come in here? Why is the writer of Hebrews bringing up angels? Angels, during this time, they, they, the, for, for those that were steeped in Jewish thought, they knew that the angels... They were mediators of the Old Covenant. So in the Old Testament, we see that, we see that the angels, they, were, they played a role in communicating God's message to, to the Israelites. And then also, from some research, people have said there's a good, there's a good uh, possibility that around this time, people were worshiping angels because they were messengers of God. And this guy, Jesus, comes along, and they're like, well, is he maybe just another angel the writer of Hebrews says, no, Jesus is superior, far superior to, to angels. And what about us as men? Are we different than angels? Angels were created by God for a unique purpose. They, they, filled, they fulfilled one of the uh, roles that God needed to communicate to us. But how are we different from them? Are angels created in the image of God? And there's nowhere in the Bible that says that angels were created in the image of God. Only man was created in the image of God. And here, the psalmist is saying, 
you've made man a little lower than the angels uh, for at least this little while. Uh, angels are maybe on elevated plane, but man, we're, we're, we're somewhere on there. At, at least we're in God's mind. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. And verse 80 says that he's put everything in subjection under his feet. Um, our next point, the restoration of the intention. There, something has fallen apart. Something, as God gave us the responsibility, remember in Genesis, God gave man the responsibility of stewarding the earth, of having dominion over it. That's meaning, that dominion means that we have some sort of authority over creation. We have, um, we, we can do things uh, to creation that, as with our unique role, uh, because we, Adam, remember, Adam named things he, uh, and the, God's original plan, intent, original intention for man was that he would have dominion over the earth. But what, what happened in Genesis 3? The fall occurred, right? Adam sinned, and the, the intention that God had for man was marred. It was messed up because of sin. And, and since then, everything has gone to be ruined Almost, right? If, if we look at the way things work in the world, um, hurricanes and avalanches and earthquakes and sickness and genocide, these are signs that things have gone horribly wrong. Something needs to be restored. Let's look at verse 9. I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 8, the second part. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And this last sentence right here. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The Bible is so realistic. It it completely recognizes the reality of how things are. The Bible does not look at earth in our lives as some sort of pie in the sky. Everything is peachy, and uh, you guys are made in God's image. Hooray. Uh, Just do your own thing. The Bible is recognizing that there is something wrong, that there's something horribly wrong. When it says, uh, even though things were put under our feet, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And not just to us, but even to God. Do we see everything in subjection to God? Uh, with, for, for us, we've created a lot of things with our technology. We can do a lot. We can communicate well. We can dr- dr- drill holes um, on the ocean floor. We can build towers on hills so we can get cell phone signals. We can do a lot of stuff. But still, there's something not right. Things still fall apart. Um, anything that we can build, they, something can happen, cracks can develop, the lightning can strike things that we build, and they are just, they don't, they don't, things don't work out the way we want them to. And what about, uh, even to God? Do we ever ask, God, where are you? Why are you allowing this to happen? Uh, Christopher Hitchens, if you guys have heard of him, he is probably the world's most famous atheist at this point. He wrote, uh, uh, a couple, at least a couple, um, bestsellers that sold millions of copies uh, over the past few years, um, basically advocating atheism and saying that God, there is no God, and atheism is the only belief, and religion is a curse on the world, and religious religion is horrible. And Christopher Hitchens, this famous atheist, uh, about three months ago, he was diagnosed with cancer. And sometimes when we're faced with death knocking on our door, 
we tend to reevaluate things. And a few weeks, I think just about two weeks ago, Anderson Cooper, he interviewed Christopher Hitchens. And he said, you know, with the situation that you're in, you're dying now. Uh, does it cause you to, you know, maybe reevaluate your thoughts? Like, do you think that you'll ever change your mind about atheism? Do you ever think that maybe perhaps there is a God? And Christopher Hitchens, in his weak voice and his balding hair and his weak body, he said, people talk about deathbed conversions of famous atheists. And if you ever hear that I became a Christian or that I, start, I believe in God after, um, after I died... While, while I was on my deathbed, do not believe it because I will never believe in God. And if I ever do, it's because dementia has set in. It's because my brain isn't working right. And this atheist, he's, you say, like, how can, how can you be so sure of that? And for God, he says uh, that the, the man that says there is, no, there is no God, that man is a fool. Is God uh, in control of Christopher Hitchens? Is Christopher Hitchens subject to God? Um, other times we read of stories of genocide. We read of stories of mothers and fathers being brought in front of their children and their children watching their mother and father um, being killed or raped. And people ask, where is God? If your God is real, he will stop that. If your God is love, he will stop that. But did he stop it? No. Um, for, for Maybe for, on our level... When we see that a family member or our friends are sick and the medicine isn't working, is that sickness subject to God? Or for us in our relationships, if we have broken relationships, divorce or breakups, or if we're, um, if we're dealing with singleness, God, are you in control of my relationships? Do you care? Are our relationships subject to God? The question is, the, the, the question that we ask, it, it rings out so often. And, the, and oftentimes we just hear silence. I don't know if God is in control. I don't know if God is subject to this. If these things are subject to him. I want us to put, look at verse 9. But we see him. But we see him. I want us to look at this phrase. If you, if you consider the word but in this, the word but is... A uh, beautiful word, especially in the Bible. It means that the story isn't over yet. It means that there still is hope. So when we have, when we, when we feel hopeless, when we say, look at all that's going wrong in the world. Look at how my life has fallen apart. Look at how much uncertainty there is. The Bible says there is a but. There is a but. But we see him. Uh, I want to, I want to, want us to look at a few, uh, passages that just talk about this word but, or it includes this word but. And the Bible carries a strain of hopefulness, 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 via the word but. Psalm 73, my flesh and heart may fail, but God is a strength and my portion forever. Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Acts 10, the biggest butt in the whole world, or in the whole Bible, I guess in the whole world as well. Um, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, talking about Jesus. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. I mean, is that like the best news in the world? The fact that the story does not end there, but comma, but 
There's more to come. There's more to the story. Romans 5, 8, this is the best news for us. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. The word bud carries so much meaning. It carries so much hope. Verse 9, it, it's re, verse, verse 9 in chapter 2, it carries with it a hope. It says, even though we, we don't see everything in subjection to us or to God, believe this, that they are in subjection to, it, to him. Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. So we see Christ. For us Christians, what do we look forward to when we are unsure? What do we look forward to when we are suffering? We looked through our veil of tears. We looked through sin-stained eyes. We looked beyond our financial uncertainty. We looked beyond our pain. And we see him, but we see him. And this, as Christians, is the attitude that we always have to take. No, this is not the end of the story. The, the, the trouble that I see here is not the end of the story. But God will come through. And for us, but we see him. Who do we see? We see Jesus. He is our restorer. And what has happened? Uh, for a little while, he was made lower than the angels. Does that sound familiar? Like maybe something we just read about five minutes ago? Jesus was made lower than the angels. Um, I thought that when you were talking about the man being uh, made in the image of God and man being made lower than the angels and man being crowned with glory and honor. Uh, psalm 8 is uh, something that we call a messianic psalm in the Bible. Remember, every story talks about Jesus ultimately and every passage points to Jesus ultimately. And here is one that's um, more, even though it's veiled to the, to the readers of the Old Testament before Jesus came, came along, Psalm 8 talks about Jesus and Jesus here he was made a little lower, lower than the angels. And Psalm 8 says, man was made a little lower than the angels, but Jesus here is the ultimate um, person that Psalm 8 is talking about. So Christ, uh, he fulfilled Psalm 8. He was the one that, uh, the Son of Man, he was made a little lower than the angels. Why was it necessary that Jesus be made a little lower than the angels? We see that Christ is Supreme, Christ is better than everything. Christ created the whole universe. Why did he have to take, to condescend? Uh, why did he have to become a man? Why did he, ha- why did he, why did he have to be incarnated as a human being? It's because Christ fulfilled Psalm 8 as our representative. He, the, the, what we could not be in Psalm 8, uh, Christ was for us. So, Jesus, Jesus was, took on the form of man and he 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 was more human than any human uh has ever lived christ was more human in that he felt pain beyond anything that any human has ever felt he felt loneliness and temptation and weakness and scorn more than any man but he knew joy better than any man Um, he knew happiness and he knew hope and he knew faith better than any man. So Christ is our second Adam. If you remember in Sunday school, I think we've talked about this before. When the, the things aren't the way they are, right? Things aren't the way God intended them to be because our, the first Adam, Adam in Genesis, he sinned and he acted as our representative. But God sent Jesus Christ to be our second Adam to fulfill what the first Adam could not fulfill. 
So Jesus also, uh, if we look, read through the book of Hebrews, we see in Hebrews 2 that Jesus is the, for the first time, Jesus is referred to by his human name here. So uh, Jesus is called the creator of the universe. Jesus is called, created, is called God um, elsewhere in the Bible, uh, elsewhere in Hebrews. But for the first time, we see that Jesus is referred to it by his earthly name here. Jesus, Yeshua, I am, uh, Jesus is saying that, or this passage is saying, Jesus is human just like us. He felt temptation. He f- experienced what we feel as human beings so that you cannot say that God does not understand our pain. He does not understand our temptation or our, or, or our weakness because Christ took on the, the form of man. He became man so that he could empathize with us. Let's continue. He was crowned with glory and honor because of suffering. Uh, later on in verse 9, you may, he was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. So Jesus also, here, crowned with glory and honor, Psalm 8 also says that, you, that uh, God has crowned man with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. That because tells us that there is a reason uh, for, for what's happening here. Why was he crowned with glory and honor? Because Jesus suffered death. He, he, he suffered death as, as to fulfill the purpose and to take on the death that we should have died. Um, and because of that, he was crowned with glory and honor. Because of that, he was, he was crowned with glory and honor. If we look at um, the book of Revelation, even after Christ is resurrected and even as Jesus is in heaven, he's still referred to as the lamb that was slain. So that's so the death of Jesus is something that identify is something that identifies Christ throughout time, but he was crowned with glory and honor um, because of suffering and death. Later on in the verse, so that by the grace of God, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Why did Jesus have to taste death? If we look in the Bible. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever, like, tasted death. I know, like, Gary, you work in the ER. Um, have you seen dead people before? Or, like, like there's, there's a, if, you, or if, if any of us have seen dead people, or if you've been around dead people for long enough, you know it's, it's nasty, and people will say, um, you can taste, there's, like, a, a sickly sweet taste and smell um, if you're around dead bodies, and it's disgusting. Hebrews says that Jesus tasted death. But it's beyond anything that we can think of. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, he sat, he was, when he was alone, when he was praying to his father, he says, Father, if you will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And what was this cup that Jesus was to drink? It was a cup of God's wrath. Every punishment that we deserve, every sin that we committed that, that deserved God's incredible terrible wrath was in that cup and on that cross jesus tasted death to the fullest god poured his wrath out on jesus and he died a physical death but beyond that he died a spiritual death that we should have died he experienced abandonment and loneliness that none of us will ever experience because on the cross he the god the father turned his face away from the son and in that he tasted death to the fullest extent, death, absolute death, infinite 
this horrible death that we cannot even experience. But Jesus experienced death. He tasted death for everyone by the grace of God so that because Christ took on our punishment, because he died, we can live. We can live. So Psalm 8, when we look at Psalm 8, when we see this, this passage in Hebrews 2, quoting Psalm 8, when we see that man has a purpose, that we have uh, an intention, that God has a purpose for us, we see that we've not really been good stewards of the earth. We've failed God. But Psalm 8 can still be true for us because of the man Jesus Christ. But God sent his son to die for us. God sent his son to fulfill the purpose that the man in Psalm 8 could not fulfill. So Psalm 8 can be true for us because it was true of Jesus. Jesus is a second Adam, um, and he acts as our representative to fulfill what we failed at. So how does this, how does this relate to us? How does this relate to our situation? And I think as we go through uh, life and as we live as citizens on this earth, we will see that things continue to fall apart. Things don't really seem to be getting better. The economy is falling apart. Your health and your body is falling apart. Um, we are not sure about this church. Like, who can say for certain that this church is going to be around? Who can say for certain that whatever job I have is going to be secure in six months or a year or three days? Who can be sure that the people that we care about most in our lives are still going to be around when it matters? We can't say. We, are, we can't say that we're in control. We can't say, as the Bible says here, that all things are subject to us. We don't call the shots. So what do we do? We do what verse 9 says, but we see him. And as Christians, we have to continually be looking at Jesus. If we want hope, it's not hope that things will get better for us. It's not hope that we can figure out some strategy for improving our life. It's not that we can find six steps in making our life better. There is no hope in that. The Bible is so realistic in saying, there, you can't say for certain. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come, the writer of Hebrews says later on. And we look to Jesus, and we look to him as the word of God. John 1, 1, Jesus was the word. He was the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Jesus explains God, and we see Jesus in his ultimate condescension, God becoming a little baby, a little humble baby born in a feeding trough, in disgusting filth. And we see Jesus becoming angry at the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Um, we see Jesus in his tenderness healing, healing sick people and forgiving, forgiving sinners. We see him in his joy eating with tax collectors. We see Jesus in his, in his forgiveness, partying with prostitutes and, and drunkards and liars. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, alone, abandoned, and praying out to God, crying out to God, remove this from me. We see Jesus on the way to the cross, and for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We see Jesus on the cross being tortured for our sins so that we might live. We see Jesus in his power being risen from the dead. And because 
he did that. Death is defeated. Death no longer can have grip over us. And our King is alive. And we see Jesus right now at the right hand of the Father, always interceding for us, always mediating for us, always watching over us, always caring for us. And we see Jesus one day he will come in unimaginable glory and unimaginable light and unimaginable power and unimaginable terror. He will crush his enemies under his feet. He will tear his enemies apart and he will come for us. And we will see Jesus one day as the bride, as the bridegroom and the church is his bride. And we will experience love like we can't even imagine this, the love that we experience as, as, as lovers of each other, as romantic people, as husbands and wives, will not compare to the love that we will experience when we see Christ as our bridegroom and we are the bride. We will see Jesus. We have to look at him. Think, think when you see that there, when you don't think that there's anything worth worshiping, when it seems like your Xbox or your Facebook or your car is worth worshiping. We look to Jesus in heaven and we see in Revelation, surrounded by a huge thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions of created beings, humans and angels worshiping God. Worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We look at Jesus. This is our occupation as Christians. When we think that things are falling apart, we look to Jesus, but we see him who was made a little lower than the angels. And he was crowned. Now he's crowned with glory and honor. And one day, we will rule with him. There will be a day on the, on the new heavens and the new earth when we will fulfill our purpose as, as God's stewards of his creation. And there will be a day when there will be no such thing as sadness. There will be no such thing as, as, as death. Um, Death is no longer the enemy, and there will be no such thing as darkness. We will see light. We will, we will know life as God intended. So this is our application. And one final story. Um, just that I, there's, there's a story of, um, in the 17th century, there's a group of slave traders that went to a land, and they rounded up all the, all the natives of the land and with their weapons and their, and their intimidation they took these people and they said, you guys are going to become our slaves. And these slaves couldn't fight back. So they put all the, sla- all the slaves on a ship and they shipped them off to an island. And there they, perf- they acted as slaves. They performed <coughs> duties as slaves. And year after year after year, they would just do the work of slaves and they would listen to the slave masters. One day, the king of the land where the slave traders came from, or the the slave masters, he issued a proclamation saying that at the end of um, this month, these slaves will be free. These slaves will be free. And the slaves heard this, and some, as they got closer to to the date, some rejoiced. Others said, you know, there's no way. Like The only life that we know is slavery. Um, So the night before, they just went to bed, you know, tomorrow's not going to be any different. I'm not going to be a free man. Other people were hopeful. They, they said, when I wake up, I'm going to be a free man. There was another group of people that were so 
excited, ecstatic about the fact that they would be free. That the, in hours before the sun came up, they they went to the they went to they went to the far end of the island, and they found the 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 tallest hill that they could find. So they climbed up the hill, and when they got to the top of the hill, they found the tallest tree that they could find. And these guys climbed to the top of the tree. And as the sun was coming up, they stuck their hands out, waiting for the ray of light to hit their fingers. Because they knew that when that light hit their fingers, they would be free men. And this is the position that we take as Christians on this earth. We are not at home in this world. But we stick our hands up. We climb the highest mountain. We climb the tallest tree on that hill, on that mountain. And we stick our hands up, looking at the sun waiting for the sun to touch our fingers, and we will know that we are free. So what is Psalm 8 about? It's about our destiny. We have failed at it, but our second, the second Adam, our representative, Jesus Christ, has fulfilled it. So it can be true of us as well. So I want us to just continue to look to Jesus. That's my application for us, is what else are you going to look at? What else are you going to hope in? There is no other hope. There is no one else to look at. If you are going to fulfill your purpose as a created being, if you're going to fulfill your purpose as a worshiper, look to Jesus. Will you guys pray with me? God, we thank you so much for making known this life to us and for sending Jesus that we might know life. And I pray that you will give us a hope even in whatever circumstance we're in, even when things seem dark and there is no light. We pray that you would make us a people of hope and we look forward to the day when there will be no such thing as hope because our hope is fulfilled. One day we will be a people of hopelessness because that hope has been fulfilled, God. And we thank you for that. And God, make us worshipers. Let us respond in the right way to you. In Jesus' name, amen.